Welcome to this episode of Booker's House of Learning for the Rise of the Dictators pre-World War II. Now, after World War I, the world was in basically a state of chaos, politically, socially, and economically. And the environment for the rise of extremism really was there, particularly in countries that were struggling economically after the Great Depression. However, some countries were politically vulnerable after World War I, particularly Italy. There's going to be political jockeying for um, different political parties to take power in Italy, and they have a coalition government within their parliament that is weak and incredibly divided. Benito Mussolini is going to be able to exploit the frustrations of Italians about the sluggish economy and social and political issues throughout Italy post-World War I. He and the black shirts carried out the March on Rome in 1922 to solidify his power in Italy and establish Europe's first fascist state. Mussolini's foreign policy has two phases. He's seen as being quote-unquote diplomatic from 1922 to 1935 and then more aggressive from 1935 to 1945. Now we have to look at Italy's participation in World War I. Italy joined the Allied forces during World War I after the promises of land um, would be given to them if the Allied forces won. And at the Paris Peace Conference, the Italians had some power, but not too much. They didn't get all the land that they were promised, and really the British, the French, and the USA had the true political power. However, Italy would join the League of Nations, and they would be a contributing um, country in what the League did. However, not always in, within the covenant of the League of Nations. Uh, Mussolini is not the leader at the Paris Peace Conference, um, but this is going to fit into the context of his foreign policy after World War I. So taking a look at Mussolini from 1922 to 1935 as quote-unquote being more diplomatic than aggressive, we have to look at Mussolini's vision for Italy. He wants to rebuild the Holy Roman Empire. The problem is, is that this is going to be very unlikely considering that he's going to have to take over countries like Germany, Poland, and other European countries to accomplish this. However, he is going to try and rectify some of the things that he was promised uh, in the Paris Peace Conference. Our first event is going to be the invasion of Corfu in 1923. Now, there were some boundary issues in Greece, and Italy had members of an international boundary delegation present. Unfortunately, for two Italians, they were murdered on Greek soil, and Mussolini felt that the response should be to invade the Greek island of Corfu. He had to show his strength for the Italian people. Now, this is an early case study for the weakness of the League of Nations because he completely bombards the island of Corfu, occupies it, and he doesn't use the mechanisms of the League of Nations, which he is a member of on the council. However, this is going to be resolved by uh, Italy getting, um, you know, 50 million lira from Greece and he is going to eventually withdraw. So that's kind of where we see an element of diplomacy. Um, but the fact that he doesn't use the mechanisms of the League, the League is unable to really hold Mussolini accountable, does show the weakness of the League of Nations and his willingness to exploit the weakness of the League of Nations. 
Our next event is the Port of Fiume, which is going to take place from 1923 to 1924. Now, uh, Fiume is going to be an international port in Yugoslavia. However, Italy wants this port because ports are valuable. They make money. It gives them a sense of economic and political power. Um, he doesn't feel like sharing it with the international community. And the municipality around the port, the city around the port, they actually do want to be um, Italian. So the part of the expansion promises is going to say, hey, listen, uh, we're going to get this port. This was a port that was promised to us by the Allies during our entrance um, of World War I on the Allied side, so we should have it anyways. Um, he's going to invade the city, once again, completely disregarding the covenant of the League of Nations. And um, the League is also, once again, going to be unable to respond to Italy acting aggressively. Eventually, in January of 1924, Yugoslavia having no choice, they don't have a strong standing military, the League of Nations is not supporting them, they're going to have to sign the Treaty of Rome, which is going to relinquish all rights of the port of Fiume over to the Italians. Now, when we look at his diplomacy, we could make the argument that he participates in the Locarno Conference, and he actually gives France the backing that they so desperately want that says, hey, if you're ever attacked, we'll support you. They don't necessarily concretely declare what type of support, but it's enough to give France a little leeway to start negotiating with the Germans. They also signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, renouncing war. They did participate in the Washington Naval Conference. Mussolini is also able to make diplomatic agreements with Greece, Hungary, and the Soviets. Um, he also stands up to Hitler at the Stress Affront Conference, in which he tells Hitler, no, you can't have Austria. But eventually, we're going to see that play out in 1938, when Hitler invades Austria, and Mussolini is like, yeah, that's fine. OK, I got what I wanted. Now, we are going to see Mussolini turn to a more aggressive policy. And this is really going to come from the effects of the Great Depression. Mussolini's popularity begins to decline back at home. And he's also kind of inspired by the audacity of Adolf Hitler's foreign policy. Hitler's able to just do whatever he wants, and there's little response from the international community. So we see Mussolini turn to a more aggressive nature. And he needs to make an argument to the Italians back home that he's there for them, that he is still working to keep Italy's power and to help develop their economic uh, plight out of the Great Depression. So what he decides to do is invade Abyssinia in 1935. This is going to be a unifying force for Italians. And he can also make the argument that I'm going to invade Abyssinia because we're going to get all of these raw materials, and this is going to help us out of our economic plight from the Great Depression. And um, we also have a little backstory for Abyssinia. The Italians had tried to invade Abyssinia during the scramble for Africa. However, the Abyssinians were able to keep the Italians from gaining that territory 
because the Abyssinian emperor had made some plans or deals with the French and the British that um, Abyssinia would give some land to the British and French, but in exchange would have some modern weaponry available to them. And because of that, they really were able to fend off the Italians during the scramble for Africa. However, they were not able to defeat the Italians in 1935, and even though Abyssinia pleads to the League of Nations for assistance, they're going to ignore that. And the main reason why is because the League is still hoping that they can keep Italy on the side of the British and the French and to fend off the German aggressive foreign policy. So the League of Nations is going to go very weak on the Italians at that point. Now, from 1936 onwards, Italy makes it very clear that they are siding with Germany. And we see that evident in the Rome-Berlin Axis of 1936. And this is going to begin the formation of the Axis powers for World War II. This agreement was between Italy and Germany, recognizing the support for each country that they had for one another. And this is going to be formalized by the Pact of Steel in 1939, in which both countries will offer military support for one another if they need to go into conflict. Now, 1936 is a very happening year. We're going to have the development of the Spanish Civil War in 1936 through 1939. Mussolini is going to enter the Spanish Civil War as a way to garnish more political power working with Germany and to have the potential of a third fascist state emerge in Europe. This is definitely going to change the political dynamics, taking away that political power from Britain and France. Now, Mussolini's troops, they're not very successful in the battles of the Spanish Civil War. However, they can at least claim, hey, we were on the victorious side of the Spanish Civil War. Now, it doesn't matter that they're not very successful. They do need to be bailed out by German troops, but Mussolini can come back and use this as propaganda points and show that the political tide is moving in the favor of the Germans, the Italians, and the third fascist state of Spain. Um, during the Spanish Civil War, uh, Mussolini uh, wants Albania and they're going to invade Albania. And this is a way to once again rectify the promises that were made at the Treaty of Versailles and it's going to give Mussolini another propaganda talking point of telling the Italians, look what I'm doing for you. Uh, Italy had already heavily influenced um, over the country in Albania, but um, this is just going to solidify their power and quote unquote solve the domestic problems that Mussolini is facing at home. And also, Hitler had just taken Austria in 1938 and nothing happened to him, so this kind of gives the green light for Mussolini to just take Albania because what is the League of Nations going to do? Uh, the evidence shows nothing. Now, when World War II breaks out in 1939, Italy is definitely going to join the side of Hitler. However, by 1943, the Italian troops had suffered series of losses, had overextended themselves, and eventually they're going to go over to the Allied forces. Mussolini is going to be captured and executed, and that is going to be the fate of Italy under Mussolini.
So this is going to bring our attention to the Spanish Civil War. Now, since 1885, Spain had been under the rule of King Alfonso XIII. However, Spain was becoming increasingly politically divided with different groups such as the monarchists, socialists, communists, liberals, separatists, and anarchists. In 1923, there was a bloodless coup um, of the Spanish government, and Miguel de Primavera becomes a military dictator with the support of King Alfonso XIII. You may ask yourself, why would a monarch allow for a military dictator to come in? But it's going to help solidify King Alfonso's uh, presence on the throne, and it's going to create quote-unquote more order um, because as mentioned before there is so much political divide within Spain that King Alfonso XIII believes that this is going to be good for the country of Spain moving forward. Now um, under um, de Rivera, there are some small military victories and investments in the infrastructure. However, the Great Depression hits and de Rivera is going to be forced to resign because it doesn't matter who was in charge at the time of the Great Depression. The economic consequences of that time period were so drastic that it any country is going to have a difficult time solving the consequences of the Great Depression. So that brings us to De Rivera's fate and he is going to be forced to resign and from that point forward Spain is just going to fall into turmoil. We're going to hold an election in 1931 and the Republicans are going to win a lot of local elections with all of the major cities in Spain under Republican control. Now let's figure out what a Spanish Republican is. That's going to consist of your socialist, communist, and anarchist. The types of people that are going to be supporting that group are factory workers and peasant farmers. And they want to have a republic because the people are in charge of a republic, not a military dictator, not a monarch. And so um, they're going to come into power in 1931 and King Alfonso XIII is fearing of bloodshed, so he abdicates the throne, and Spain is going to become a republic at this point. However, they're going to face a lot of domestic issues. Prime Minister Manuel Lozana, he's going to make some dramatic reforms during this time period. And it doesn't matter what great reforms you make, we also have to remember that the Great Depression is still going on, and so the dramatic impact of um, the Great Depression is going to negatively impact the economy. However, Manuel Lozana comes out of the gate with such dramatic reforms that it's going to be difficult for him to keep power. His reforms are going to include reducing the power of the Catholic Church. Now the Catholic Church in Spain is an absolute powerhouse, so decreasing that power is going to be problematic for a lot of citizens within Spain also reducing the power of the military, increasing wages of factory workers, and nationalizing agricultural lands. We can see what Azana is trying to do, but these are pretty drastic reforms, and particularly he's angering all of the people that really have the power of Spain. So he just uh, enraged the Catholic Church, uh, he just put a wedge between him and the military, as well as all of the powerful, wealthy business owners. So he's going to have to resign in 1933, 
And that's going to bring us to the election of 1933, where the nationalists are going to win this election. Now, the type of people that are going to make up the nationalists are going to be military, businessmen, landowners, and the church. And we're going to see the creation of the political party called CETA. And their platform is to protect family values, religion, and the church. So you can see that these are all of the counterpoints that Azana had implemented. And the impact of this is that it's going to draw more left-wing groups together, and they're going to formulate a group called the Popular Front. So we have the political party, the CETA, on the right. Those are the nationalists. And then we have the left-wing group called the Popular Front, and those are the people that are looking to have uh, a Republic of Spain maintain and thrive. Now, um, they're going to, um, this is for the popular front, they're going to use practices such as general riots, they're going to be violent at times, and they're going to go on strike in the factories. All of this is going to continue spiral, spiraling Spain into the depths of the economic depression, and it's just going to create unsustainable political division and chaos. So, we're going to fast forward to the election of 1936, and this is where things really get heated. The Republicans, they're going to win this go-around. So we start off with the monarchy, then we ping-pong back and forth with the election of 31 going to the Republicans, then the election of 1933 going to the Nationalists, and then the election of 1936 going to, once again, the Republicans. With this victory, this is going to bust out the Spanish Civil War. And because the Republicans win, this is really going to solidify the right, the, the CETA group, the uh, Falange group, which the Falange is kind of an extension of the CETA slash nationalist. This is going to be the fascist section of the right-wing party, and Francisco Franco is going to be the leader. Now, Francisco Franco was a military general in the Canary Islands, and he's going to return to the mainland of Spain to try and overthrow the Republicans' victory in 1936. Now, he's going to hitch a ride from Adolf Hitler's brand new air force, and this is going to begin the Spanish Civil War. Now, as I already mentioned before, but I'm going to talk about it again, there are the two sides of the Spanish Civil War. We have the Republicans, the Socialists, the Communists, Anarchists, the Peasant Farmers, Factory Workers, and an international br brigade of sympathizers. What is their end goal? Well, they don't really have an end goal other than they don't like Francisco Franco and the fascists. They're going to have a difficult fight because they're an untrained militia and they have such differing views on how they want the outcome to go. Like, for instance, you have a communist who has a complete control of the government. It's a central figure in Spain. And then you have anarchists that really don't want any government with the socialists kind of in between. So they don't really have an end goal point other than they don't want Francisco Franco. Um, the Republicans are going to get some foreign aid from the Soviets and volunteers from that international brigade. 
Now, the Soviets are not going to send over actual troops. They're going to be sending over military equipment, which is going to kind of help sustain the Republicans and where we could make the argument that uh, helps the Spanish Civil War go on for two years and eight months. Now, the other side of the Spanish Civil War is the nationalists. This is the military, the church, business owners, and their end goal is to reestablish the traditions of Spain with a strong military, traditional conservative values, and to establish a fascist dictator. They're going to have the advantage because the military was disciplined. Franco is a successful general, and they're going to receive a lot of aid from Italy and Germany. Germany and Italy felt that getting involved in the Spanish Civil War was a good thing for them because it would help them out politically, militarily, and economically. This would help spread the ideology of fascism and would change the political power away from Britain and France and start giving Germany and Italy some political power. Now, the international community is not necessarily eager for breaking out um, you know, having the Spanish Civil War break out beyond the Spanish borders. Many countries want to avoid conflict from expanding and escalating, and people are still worried about another world war breaking out. So Britain and France, they propose a non-intervention agreement. And this was met with a lot of fictitious support. 27 countries are going to sign on to this agreement in August of 1936. But by September, Germany and Italy are already full-fledged involved in the Spanish Civil War. They're already providing troops and military equipment to Franco's forces. The Soviets, they're going to start sending over equipment to the Republicans in January of 1937. And really, like I already mentioned, Germany and Italy want a third fascist state. And the Soviets are hoping to spread communism as well as get on the good side of Britain and France saying, hey, look, we're standing up to fight the forces of fascism in Europe. Now, Britain, France, America, they are not interested in getting involved in another conflict. So they kind of stay by the wayside. But what this is doing is really just helping, you know, a third fascist state emerging in Europe. And Germany is also able to use the Spanish Civil War as like a little trial run for their new air force and military that rebuilt from the ground up. And so this is going to play into the hands of Hitler and Mussolini's foreign policy. Uh, during World War II, Spain is going to stay neutral because they're not able to protect the Canary Islands or Morocco from a British attack. So Francisco Franco is not willing to give those up. And they're also recovering from their own civil war. Um, now, Franco was victorious in that, but he doesn't want to spread Spain's military too thinly. He's content with just staying in power. Now, the Spanish Civil War is often seen as like a warm-up for World War II. And we see this because it's kind of the divide of how the world is playing out. You know, you have Germany and Italy and Francisco Franco on one side versus the Soviets. Um, we have Britain and France that are eventually going to join the Soviets for World War II. But um, this is really just showing the escalating political divide in Europe. So that's going to bring us to Adolf Hitler. 
And Adolf Hitler is able to come into power in Germany in 1932, early 1933, um, through diplomatic means, once again, but he exploits the Weimar Republic's constitution. And a lot of people just think like, okay, if we put Hitler as chancellor of Germany, then he'll start behaving like a politician. However, that is far from the truth and history plays that out. For Adolf Hitler, his vision was to rebuild Germany's prestige, influence, power, and land. One thing that I like to frame Hitler as is he is maniacal and methodical. He uh, is very evil in the plans that he envisions with the final solution, and he's very methodical for how he plays the European continent like a chessboard. He wants Germany to be vindicated from the toll that the Treaty of Versailles had taken on um, Germany and how unfair it was. This was known as the German diktat, the harsh punishment from the Treaty of Versailles and really the humiliating state that uh, Germany was in. He also wants Germany to be an autarky, a self-sufficient government in which Germany would not have to depend on imports for Germany's needs, that they would be able to meet all of their domestic supplies um, internally. Um, like I said, Hitler comes to power in 1933 through manipulating the German constitution and propaganda. Once he comes into power, he's going to immediately begin to challenge the international community. We first see this at the World Disarmament Conference. It's here where the deep-rooted mistrust among European powers are going to begin to show. Now, the goal of the conference was to reduce troop size and military capabilities. But France and Britain were increasing their troop size and were unwilling to reduce their militias. Um, there was a series of reasons for this. I mean, they saw that Germany was kind of beginning to grow in power. They also understand the threat of communism. And just the political, economic, and social environment of Europe is very tense at this time. Hitler calls out, particularly France and Britain, and says, listen, you guys are unwilling to reduce your armaments. Why am I going to try and play by your rules? So Hitler leaves the World Disarmament Conference and withdraws Germany from the League of Nations. This is just kind of setting the tone for the 1930s uh, politics in Europe. And things are just going to escalate from here. Uh, Hitler is going to stop making any repar reparation payments from the Treaty of Versailles, and he's going to begin to overturn the whole document. He's going to begin rebuilding the Air Force in 1933, rebuilding the Navy and Army um, in 1935. They're going to grow exponentially. Hitler's progression of manipulating the European politics is going to begin as early as 1934. Hitler signs a non-aggression pact with Poland saying that if Germany were to perhaps take Austria and Czechoslovakia, that Poland would remain neutral and they would be okay. Now, in the context of 1934, this was proof for Britain that Germany was being quote-unquote peaceful and diplomatic. Now, in hindsight, we see that this is Hitler just being maniacal and methodical. He's setting up his long-term game here. Now, 
Germany also has an influence over Austria, and we see this in 1934, where the Austrian Nazis assassinate the Austrian Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss. This was so Germany could have a puppet state within Austria and begin to gain more and more influence within Austria. Hitler is going to be met with direct resistance, though, with Hitler trying to take over Austria completely. Britain, France, and Italy end up holding this Stress of Front Conference in 1935, basically telling Hitler, no, you can't have Austria. For Hitler, this shows that he needs to work a little more on Mussolini because here you have one fascist dictator telling another fascist dictator, like, no, you can't take over that territory. For Mussolini, he was a little bit nervous about having the Nazis so close to the Italian border, so that's why he said no. Now, this is also why Hitler gets Mussolini involved in the Spanish Civil War, because it was a way for them to kind of team up, buddy up. And for Hitler, this was a way of distracting Mussolini um, so he could eventually take Austria. And that's what ends up happening in 1938. Now, 1935 is a busy year. We have the Anglo-German Naval Agreement, which is where Britain is basically telling Germany, yeah, you can rebuild your navy. But what's so shocking is, is it's kind of like a green light for Germany to just keep ignoring the Treaty of Versailles here. And we know that this is going to make France a little bit nervous because Britain is giving Germany the green light to rebuild their navy. All right. Um, and Hitler would have done that regardless, but it just kind of was more empowering for Hitler to get Britain to agree to this. Also in 1935, we have the return of the Saar Valley to Germany. Now, the Saar Valley was that coal-rich area that the Treaty of Versailles said that in 15 years there would be a plebiscite or a vote where the citizens of the Saar Valley could choose whether or not they wanted to remain under French control or go back to Germany. So here it is, 15 years later, uh, 1935, the citizens of the Saar Valley vote to go back to Germany. And this is going to be a huge propaganda play for Hitler where he can say, look, these folks wanted to come and live under my rule. Now, 1935 also starts Hitler's conscription. He is going to start rebuilding Germany's military complex, and this is one, to get more soldiers, and two, the impacts of the Great Depression, there's still a lot of high unemployment. How are you gonna get all of these young men back to work? Put them in the military, start rebuilding military factories. That's going to get people back to work. And so that's what Hitler does. Now, moving on to 1936, Hitler is going to continue testing the waters, and he invades the Rhineland. That was that demilitarized zone within Germany's border, but under the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was not supposed to have any military. Well, Hitler's like, let's see how this goes. So he is going to invade the Rhineland, and he tells his troops that if there's any resistance from the French, just come home. Well, there is no resistance. And this goes to show how passive the other powers of the world were being. They do not want to go to war. And they're also, at the same time, trying to build up their own national security because the, the tension within Europe is just growing. 
And to escalate things, we have that Rome-Berlin axis that's formed in 1936, and then the Anti-Comintern Pact, which is created in 1936, or 37, I'm sorry. This shows the political divide where you have Japan, Italy, Germany, they're doing a jig around the axis. That's one side of World War II. And then you have everybody else, Britain, France, the Soviets, and eventually the Americans. And they're just kind of seeing how the political dynamics of the 1930s are going to play out. You and I have hindsight that it's not going to end very well because we're going to go into the Second World War. Now, Germany does get involved in the Spanish Civil War in 1936, and this is often seen as a dress rehearsal for World War II. Hitler needs to train his men in combat and check out his new military. Uh, interestingly enough, it's going to give Hitler the advantage of having the most modern artillery because they're having to rebuild their entire military industry from scratch. So when we look at Hitler's foreign policy, of gaining more territory, gaining more political dynamics, um, rectifying Germany's prestige and power, um, and their military, he's able to accomplish the majority of his foreign policy by 1938 without any real threat of conflict. But in 1938, um, Hitler has a bunch of riots staged in Austria in 1938, and this will give Hitler justification to fully invade Austria. He's going to say, oh wow, things are getting pretty chaotic in Austria, I better go in and help keep the peace. So he invades Austria, and this is the completion of Anschluss, another concept that was forbidden under the Treaty of Versailles. In 1938, there is going to be the Munich Conference. This is where Britain, France, Italy, and Germany are all going to agree that Germany should have the Sudetenland. This was a territory with one million German-speaking people living within the borders of Czechoslovakia. And Hitler has made this argument that all of these German-speaking people living throughout Europe should live under the German flag. And from the British, French, and Italian perspective, they're like, okay, if we give Hitler what he wants, he will be fine, he will be satiated, he'll stop there. But he's a dictator with a grand vision of a grand empire, so of course he's not going to stop there. Um, once the Sudetenland is given to Adolf Hitler, within a few months he then goes and invades the entire country of Czechoslovakia. So when we look at Hitler's actions in 1938 and before, there is very little reason for Adolf Hitler to believe that the international community is actually going to stop him. The League of Nations has done nothing. Britain, France, the United States have done nothing. The Soviets, well, they kind of tried to fight a little bit in the Spanish Civil War. So no one is stopping him. So finally in 1939, Hitler decides that he is going to invade Poland. Poland is very strategic. Uh, it's going to give him more territory in the east. It's going to buffer up right next to the USSR. It's going to give him a lot of natural resources. And it's just going to continue to boost his ego. The international community says, if you invade Poland, we will declare war on you. Already mentioned before, in 1939, there is nothing in Hitler's brain that tells him, oh, they're going to actually do something. So in September of 1939, he invades Poland, which ultimately starts World War II.
I do want to mention beforehand that in 1939, he does sign the non-aggression pact with the USSR, saying that um, to the Soviet Union that if Poland is invaded, we're going to stay neutral towards you, Soviet Union. We're not going to invade you. For Joseph Stalin, he signs the pact, but he knows that he's dealing with Adolf Hitler. He can't trust his word. The only reason why Joseph Stalin really does sign the non-aggression pact is because it's going to buy the Soviet Union enough time to kind of rebuild their own military and get prepared for their own national security. We look at that signature of the non-aggression pact, and it's just one more thing that kind of gives Hitler the green light to invade Poland. And so when we look at Hitler's regime, anything that he wanted to carry out in his foreign policy, he does uh, accomplish that. However, the great consequences we do say, see play out throughout World War II. Eventually, uh, Hitler is going to die in World War II, his regime is going to end, and Germany is going to be known throughout history of that very dark, dark time period. And, um, you know, Germany has um, learned a lot and they teach about the Holocaust and the atrocities committed during that time period. They understand the threats of extremism. And throughout the 1930s, when we look at how extremism came into Europe, it's because there was such economic, political, and social chaos. And the Great Depression really set up the environment for these radical extremist ideas to take root. So I hope that was helpful for you. And I look forward to the next episode of Booker's House of Learning.